You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. So want to finish out Isaiah with really looking at, you know, the, the last chapters I said was like the shame of Israel, but also the glory. And so we have this like gap in between them. And so chapter 60 is starting with this incredible transformation that God wants to have them have take place. And it's going to have Isaiah seeing the return of God's favor in like these earthly terms, which is the, in their wealth and in their power and in their influence. And so we see a lot of this in chapter uh, 60. And just an example is that I will exchange your bronze for gold, your iron for silver, silver, your wood for bronze and your stones for iron. I will make peace your leader and righteousness your ruler. And so that's an upgrade. This is how the Lord is wanting to uh, restore and to bring into right relationship, everything that they um, have not been experiencing. And so we move on to chapter 61. And this is when I said yesterday that Jesus loves this book is because that's what he built his ministry on. And so he is reading these uh, scriptures as he's in the synagogue. And then he says, and today this scripture has been fulfilled. And so if you look at um, even Luke, let's flip there quickly, and then we'll, um, Luke 4. So um, it says, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where, he, where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor is near. Then he rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> Words that Isaiah wrote. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he is like, I have fulfilled this. 
I just love that. I know, seriously. Like, yep, that was me. <laughs> I know. I, that again? <laughs> Come again? Sometimes, like, I, I had somebody, somebody asked me once about, like, the divinity of Christ, you know, whether he claimed to be divine. You know, and I was like, well, I mean, I get that's kind of a, you know, like, I get your, I get why the question gets asked, but it's like he claims to have the power to forgive sin. You know, and, like, everybody in that time would know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a claim. It's like, yeah. It's true. Who's going to claim that? Yeah, that's so true. Um, yes, it's very good. And I actually have here like a, a side-by-side of Isaiah's words and then Matthew 5. And so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail with this because time is not on my side. Um, but you can go back through that when you get the slides. And then I had a, I was going to play the Bible Project video on heaven and earth, but I'm not going to do that either. You all can go back and you can look at it. So I'm going to skip on through to uh, the last few chapters of the book. And so I'm not playing the video. <laughs> you can just stay seated. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, and so in, in this next section, these last few chapters of Isaiah, we see that Isaiah prays, and in 63, 15, um, it says, Lord, look down from heaven, look from your holy, glorious home, and see us. Where's the passion and the might you have shown on our behalf? And so he is an, on and on through chapter 64, verse 12. And so he says, oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down, how the mountains would quake in your presence. And so he's asking for God to rend the heavens and come down. And so in chapter 65, God is going to respond by saying, he has been patiently waiting with open arms for people to come to him in genuine repentance. And so not just you know, I will say any kind of manner, but in genuine repentance. And this is especially chapter 65, those first uh, verses, especially verse 1. I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call my name. I mean, that is the character of God. I was ready to respond. I was ready to be found. And those same words that Isaiah took up his call is the ones that the Lord is saying, here I am, here I am. But to a nation that would not listen. And so because of their obstinance to not listen to him, their religious sacrifices and their observances would be like smoke in his nostrils. And so I'll do like some little flames. I'm horrible at drawing. <laughs> but, yeah, the fire. Um, and so God saw their hearts and he sees 
what's in our hearts today, what we talked about before break. And so even though the people continually gave him reasons not to restore, yet he's still offering it to them. And so we, we will have an anchor in this sure foundation for our faith, for our salvation. And it is because of this promise that Jesus is going to be coming back. And so when we hear about these new heaven, the new earth, it's really, he's hitting home on it in chapter 65. As God will answer the prayer of his people, but it will far exceed anything they ever could have imagined. And it will be those who align themselves against the Lord, there will be total destruction. But for the faithful ones, there will be life, there will be joy, there will be peace beyond imagination. Because there will be this heaven and earth that will be made new. And so Isaiah is going to be concluding uh, these, his prophecies with this look at this future glory of Zion. And so this really is placed in, I use the terms, eschatological setting, which I give you the definition. And that really just means the study of the last, you know, of the end of, the study of the end things. That's what I'm trying to say. And so all of this is placed in this setting because he's wanting to remind them of this final act that he has in store, and that is to come. And so really in this renewed world and kingdom, people from all nations are invited into God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And Isaiah ends with this grand fulfillment. And I love that he ends his book in this way. Because God's covenant family is going to be made up of all the nations and not just one. And it's those who are awaiting this hope of God's justice. And where God will finally come on earth as he is in heaven. So the book of Isaiah stands in the middle of the Old Testament as a reminder that Yahweh is the living God who will judge the world in righteousness and with mercy and will save his people and the nations through his suffering servant. And so this book really is, it's gathering up the whole of the Old Testament story and it's preparing and making the way for the New Testament. And so I love the book of Isaiah. And I hope that through this teaching, you've learned a little bit more and that you grow to love it more and more as you continue to read it. 
And that's all I have for Isaiah. Any questions before we move into our last day? I can say them to the end if you'd like, or if you have none at all. <laughs> I'm like, whatever. <laughs> um, but we are going to turn to Jonah. This will be the last book that we have together. Okay. How'd you all like reading Jonah? Yeah? Why do you love it? Uh-huh. Like before I knew that much about him, I understood, like, it's scary when God calls you to go somewhere. And it's scary, and there's sometimes I just want to run away myself. Yeah. And I have run away. Mm -hmm. Not physically, but, yeah. Yeah. I've ignored what God has called me to do. Mm -hmm. And then God kind of put me, like, in a timeout before. And I understood that. And mm -hmm. so when I read Jonah, I was in that timeout, and that's what brought me. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, I understand that. Um, and then now reading it, with more understanding of who he was, yeah. his character. I just think the entire book is hilarious, but um, I also can see God's redemptive plan in it. Yeah. Yeah, he uses someone who wasn't even speaking truth to, yeah, speak truth and bring his people back to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, are we ready to get into this? Mm -hmm. Got a couple of funny, funny slides to start with. I know. I like that picture. Okay, here we go. Can I read this for me? So you know how it normally has the fish, but he's actually in it. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> okay. Another one. Come read that one for me. Oh, oh um, come on. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were the ones who did the eating when Jonah disobeyed. <laughs> the one getting eaten. Yes. <laughs> okay, one more. <laughs> Can you all see it? Go to Nana. It's amazing how far God will go to teach me a lesson. It's a school of fish. Yes. So fish, if they're all together, are called school. And so, yes. So that it only takes one to teach Jonah his lesson. Ha ha. Okay. So just some funny little. <laughs> Sorry, some people who are not first language, it's hard to understand. But you have incredible people to teach you. <laughs> so, okay. So, was it fact or fiction? What do you think? Was it real? Yeah, I think so because Jesus talks about it like it was real. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I'll just say some critics commonly view this book as being just a legend or a myth or a parable, which is like, 
something that Jesus or they would use to uh, get a point across, but they would do it in a story form. Either way, we know it is possible to survive in the belly of a fish and not just from Jonah. Huh? I know. Okay, so I'm going to tell you. <laughs> just everything I say is truth, and so we're all good. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> I mean, I hope I'm not lying to you, but. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, so we have this story of this guy named James Bartlett. And this is from 1891. And I don't think, I'm, I'm going to try to read this, but I don't know. if It's a little bit small. Let me see if, okay, really where I want to pick up is, so this happened in February of 1981. So there was this whaling ship called the Star of the East that um, sighted this large whale three miles away. And so two boats were launched, and one of the harpooners was able to spear the whale. And the second boat attacked the whale, but was, it, but was upset by the lash of the whale's tail. And so the men were thrown into the sea. One man was drowned, and another, James Bartlett, disappeared. And so the whale was killed in a few hours, its great body lying against the ship's side while the crew members busied themselves with axes and spades, removing the blubber. They worked all day and part of the night. Then the next morning, they attached some tackle to the belly of the whale and hoisted it on a deck. And suddenly the sailors were startled by something in which gave um, sporad or, yeah, sporadic signs of life. Inside was found the missing sailor, doubled up and unconscious. He was placed on the deck and treated to a bath of seawater, which soon revived him. But his mind was not clear. He was placed in the captain's quarters where he remained for two weeks as a raving lunatic. By the end of the third week, he was entirely recovered, but his face, neck, and hands were bleached to a deathly whiteness and never recovered their natural appearance. So we know this is true that this actually happens. And then most recently, we have a man, I think it was in 2020, 2021, where um, a man was almost swallowed by a whale. And so I have his uh, story here. I don't know if it'll, let me see if it'll play. And I'm not going to say that he always like uses the best like vocabulary. He doesn't curse, I don't think, but just some of the things he says. I'm like, eh. but I couldn't find another video. <laughs> yeah. Michael Packard came home from the hospital Friday afternoon with one incredible story to tell. And I just felt this truck hit me. And everything just went dark. It was lobster diving off the coast of Provincetown when the world around him suddenly blacked out. Just thought, did I just get eaten by a white shark? And, and I said, no, I don't feel any teeth. And I said, oh my God, I'm in the mouth of a whale. With his mouth shut. 
Seconds later, he realized he was in serious trouble. To make things even worse, he couldn't find the regulator for his oxygen tank, and he had a way to escape. And I just couldn't like run out of air and suffocate. Is he gonna swallow me? That's what he thought about his family. You know, look. This is a big man for Michael. This is how you're gonna die. And then you're gonna go well. His son Jacob was in story time. Your dad was talking about a whale just, I don't know, attacked him, ate him. The humpback whale actually spit him out after 30 or 40 seconds. And I just got thrown out of his mouth. Blue water, there's white water everywhere. And I just was laying on the surface floating. That doesn't seem like a long time, but try telling that to someone who almost became a whale's hot lunch. I know you dislocated me and um, just a lot of soft tissue damage in my legs. Um, I also was scared that I had maybe a diving injury from coming up too fast or an embolism. Everything's good, the doctor says. I'm good. <laughs> I'm stuck. <laughs> yeah. I know. But. Yeah. 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 Okay, but that just happened in like 2021. So. So it's not just always a myth. <coughs> Bless you. People can get eaten by whales or by fish. Oh gosh. I could do it. I could get swallowed by a whale. <laughs> Don't let that be your life mission. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. So we're going to talk about the author, and this is Jonah, the son of Amittai. He is a native of Gath-Hefer, which is in Zebulun, which is about two miles north of uh, Nazareth. And so he was a prophet of the northern kingdom, and his name means dove. And he is a dramatic, and he is extreme in his thinking, and I would say a little self-focused. Just a tap it. So the dating of this book is probably between 785 to 750 BC. And this would have been during the reign of Jeroboam II. So we're going, I know we've sort of gone up to almost the exile of the, the Israelites at this time, but we're sort of going back a little bit. Um, and the reason why I end the week with this is because when you read Nahum next week, <laughs> um, <laughs> you will, um, this will correlate with that book. So that's why I try to do it at the end so that it's fresher on your memory than doing it at the beginning of the week. So even though it's not really in chronological order. So sorry about that. Um, so, but this would be during the reign of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. And so you can look at 2 Kings as more, um, 
information for this. And so he would have ministered during the time of the prophet Elisha. And so this would have also been right before Amos and Hosea started prophesying. And so Israel was enjoying a time of, you know, real prosperity, of wealth, of, you know, just being sort of at the height of their game. And so when we think about Israel at the height of their, at the height of their game, Assyria at this time is a nation, but they aren't really um, as prominent yet. But they are still gaining a reputation, and that's one of cruelty. And really since the ninth century, you know, the video we saw before, Assyria has been sending out these um, military excursions or expeditions and so they have been, they've gained power and then they'll lose it. They'll, they'll gain territory and then they'll lose it. And so even though Assyria is in a weakened state, they still have this like reputation for being uh, really brutal. And so they are still a threat to Israel, even though they're not a huge threat right now. And so a little bit about Assyria is that they worshipped this chief god Asher and then a multiple of other gods and goddesses. And Asher was represented as a warrior god. And so he wore a horned helmet and he carried a bow and quiver of arrows. And so Assyria's brutality and cruelty, they really were um, probably at the height that was more legendary um, but they were gaining in this at this time. And so a, a lot of their tactics were that they would impale their enemies on a stake. And so, um, and that just meant that they would die slowly. So if they were going to impale them, the, it, the stick would be put in their body and then gravity would do its work. So they would slowly, um, yeah come down the pole and die. <laughs> so, um, And then also, it was known that they would hang the heads of their enemies in their trees at the king's garden. So even just that thought of decapitating their enemies and then placing their heads as decoration in the king's garden. And so they tortured their captives also by hacking off their noses by cutting off their ears and their fingers, gouging out their eyes, and then tearing off their lips and their hands. And then it was also reported that they would cover <laughs> Faith holding onto her lips. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> It's also, if that's bad enough, it's also stated that they would like flay the skin off of their, uh, off of the people. And then they would then cover their city walls with the skin of their, their captives. So, <laughs> um, so when I, when I first heard about Assyria, the, I remember the guy who, um, who taught us about Assyria, he brought a broomstick and he was like, this was them being impaled. Like, and so we, I just always remember the broomstick. So, yep. Yes. Well, 
use a vacuum. <laughs> um, so this was just a little bit to describe. Like if if their god, their chief god is a warrior god, you know, if you are going to display the characteristics of who you serve, then this was their characteristics. And how important it is to choose who you serve and who you have as your God. Because we can see with Assyria, the actions that they displayed were in line with the God that they served. And so just be aware of that when you are reading through this, but also in life, because our gods are not always just the one true God. And so when we look at Jonah's decision, do you understand more of why Jonah's decision to run the opposite direction? He would rather quit the prophetic ministry than preach to such a people. And so Nineveh was 500 miles to the east. And so he headed to Tarshish which was probably now considered to be Spain. And this was the furthest west location that he could go, and that was known as 2,000 miles away. So he was so willing to not travel 500 miles, but go 2,000 miles to get out of this message. And so why is this book, you know, unique? Why is it unique among the book of the prophets? Because really, rather than it being a collection of prophetic oracles like we've been seeing out of these books, this is really a narrative. But it's a narrative about God's compassion for hated Gentiles. by the way, of a Hebrew prophet who wanted nothing to do with them. And so I love that we have this book in the Old Testament. And so if we look at the structure of this book, we see that it's broken down pretty clearly. There is uh, chapters 1 and 2 is the first commission, and then chapters 3 and 4 are the second commission. And so the natural break, if you were going to break this book up and read it in two different settings, you would not stop at chapter one, but you would stop at chapter two and then finish reading. And so we have uh, in the beginning of this book, you have the introduction that takes place in chapter one, verses three through or one through three. And this is where the Lord says, get up and go to that great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. And so Jonah gets the command to go. And then in verse three, Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction, hoping to escape from the Lord. And so we see that he um, buys a ticket and gets on board. And then, so he's sailing to Tarshish. And the Lord brings this powerful wind, causing this violent storm to take place. 
And so the desperate sailors are shouting out to the Lord and they're throwing off their cargo, or not to the Lord, to their gods, excuse me. They're throwing off the cargo. And at this time, Jonah is asleep. And they say, how could you sleep at a time like this? Literally, we are fearing for our lives. They say, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he'll pay attention to us. So then the crew starts casting lots, wondering who's, who's responsibility? Who's responsible for this? And then Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven and the, who made the seas and the land. And the sailors were terrified when they heard this. What should we do to have the storm stop? He said, throw me into the sea. And so the sailors are rowing even harder because they're like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. But then the Lord made the storm even more violent. And the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea and it, the storm stopped at once. And the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him sacrifices and vowed to serve him. And so Jonah has encountered this group of pagans who worship gods. But their faith surpasses that of Jonah's. Because as soon as they see that he has power over the storm, they're like, woe is me. And they offer him sacrifices and they vow to serve him. And so then the Lord arranges for this great fish. And then in chapter two, we see that Jonah prays to the Lord. And this really does reveal the heart of Jonah. talking about how I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. I called out to him from the land of the dead and the Lord, you heard me. And so he is, you know, praying this prayer to the Lord. And so the Lord's like, okay, I'm going to give you another shot at this to obey what I'm asking. And so we see that there is this really same structure, same breakdown in chapters 3 and 4. We have the introduction. We have this command to go again. And instead of him fleeing this time, now he obeys. And instead of encountering these pagan sailors, he encounters this pagan group of Ninevites. And it says, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went into the city, a city so great that it took three days to see it all. And on the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believed God's message. 
And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Even the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, and he stepped down from the throne and took off his royal robes and dressed in burlap and sat in a heap of ashes. And he said, no one, not even animals, may eat or drink anything. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps yet, perhaps even yet, God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger. And so once again, the sensitivity of these pagan people to respond to the Lord with eight words. That tells me that when God asks us to do something, that so many times the recipients are ripe for the picking, I guess you could say, for his kingdom. It took eight words in Jonah's prophecy and his prophetic ministry, and a whole city came to the Lord. their sensitivity to God and their willingness to repent and turn from their ways. And then we have chapter 4 where Jonah talks to God again. I say talking, but he's really just complaining. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. You were eager to turn from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if, you, if what I predicted will not happen. And the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? And so then Jonah goes and sits east of the city and he made a shelter. Then the Lord arranged for this leafy plant to grow. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant because the sun was blazing. But then the Lord arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And so the sun grew hot and God arranged for the scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, Jonah exclaimed. Then the Lord asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, even angry enough to die. You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. Not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And 
And I know I just read most of Jonah. So let's look at the message of this book. God's loving concern for Gentiles is not just a truth revealed in the New Testament. More than seven centuries before Christ, God commissioned Jonah to proclaim this message of repentance to a pagan nation. And so the story of Jonah is one of the clearest demonstrations in Scripture of God's mercy and His love for all people. So we can't just say that it's displayed only in the New Testament. Because it is proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. And we see that God's hand was in everything. Because He was the one that called Jonah. He was the one that sent the storm. And then he intensifies it when the soldier or the sailors were trying to rescue Jonah. He was the one that provided the fish. He is the object of praise and thanksgiving in Jonah's psalm. And then he is the one who allows the fish to spit out Jonah onto the beach and so that he can get his second chance. And then the Lord keeps his hand on Jonah until he preaches this message and is successful. And then we see in the end how he arranged or he provided for this plant and the worm and the scorching east wind. And that was all to instruct Jonah in his character and who he was. And so we see these attributes and aspects of God coming through in this book. But then we also see the character of Jonah. Jonah is outraged because of God's compassion. And it challenges his own beliefs about the way things ought to be. And so I think in this book, that really Jonah's theology is at stake. Because God is not doing what Jonah wants him to do. Because Jonah wants God to destroy Nineveh, to wipe them out. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Our enemies to be done away with? to be out of our lives, we won't have to fool with them anymore. So Jonah thought God was being too kind to the wrong people. And because God held back disaster, in Jonah's mind, God is who is acting in an evil way. Because God's boundless compassion, it shattered Jonah's prejudice against Nineveh. And really, God's eagerness to forgive those people in Nineveh, 
it really exposed the narrowness or the unwillingness of Jonah's heart. Because Jonah just wanted God to, to confine his love and mercy to Israel only. But this book illustrates how it is for all of us, his mercy and his love and his kindness. And so God's desire for repentance and forgiveness, it really is regardless of what someone has done. It's based on these things. His love and His mercy. And so I want you to think in your own mind, and I want, I'll ask you to share. What are some things that you think are unforgivable? It could be a people group. It could be a, you know, situation, a injustice. But what is unforgivable? That your attitude is like Jonah's. Yep. Yes, for sure. Human trafficking. Somebody else. Yeah, similar mindset, but murder. Mm-hmm. Of all demographics. Yep. Anybody else? Yeah. I have a few options here, and you all have named two of them. So we have people who are serial killers, who over and over again, all they do is like plot out their victims. And it's not just one, but it could be in the multiples. And then you have people who traffic those that are innocent. And then you have, I have down here all the money and the drugs. And you think about how people willingly sell drugs to other people, knowing they're going to get hooked, knowing that they're going to need it again and again and again, that they're going to make money off of those people that they bring into addiction. And the victims of the serial killers, did they ask for any of this? I mean, a lot of those murders are so brutal. And some of these things seem, even in my mind, unforgivable. Because you think of somebody who plots out evil against another human being. And so, this book is meant 
to make you think? Are you okay with God loving your enemies? Because this book really is holding a mirror up to us. Because in Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified. which I feel like should generate humility and this gratitude in us that God is so willing to love not just me, but my enemy. And really that God loves us and really puts up with the Jonah in all of us. And maybe using the word enemy is too strong, but even someone that you are in disagreement with right now or someone that you just don't have the same, you can't come to a common ground on maybe an experience that hap has happened in your lives. They see it one way and you see it a totally other way. How do you respond to that? I'm going to say a lot of times we're like, God, just let them see it. Like, let them see my point of view. Let them get it. But when it comes down to it, it's all about justice for us. Like us being right, us getting what we want, what we desire. And so this should be a, a call for us to start to approach these hurts with the Lord and having Him reveal His heart for those people that we think are unforgivable. And so really, when we think about all of this, you know, it ends with this question God posed to Jonah about, you know, Nineveh has more than 120 people. Shouldn't I feel sorry for this great city? And so this is where God is showing his desire for all the nations and how God has shown mercy to his people who didn't even deserve it. And because they didn't deserve it, the Israelites and us should then desire that that mercy be extended to all who repent. And so we should be people who rejoice when those who have been doing wrong come into this attitude of repentance and forgiveness and be willing to bestow that grace on them 
And I have some verses here, which I'm, I'm not going to go into them, but you all can look them up later. It really is just displaying God's concern for all human beings. But I want to say that this book is really about this compassion of the Lord. That no one is beyond hope. I mean, Jonah was willing to travel 2,000 miles to not share this message because he knew that God was a God of compassion. And he didn't want Nineveh to hear it. But because he is a God of compassion, he is one that is always looking for opportunities to extend that compassion and that grace. And if we are going to be made in his image and like him, then God wants to, for us to extend that mercy and that grace even to the worst of people when they are willing to repent. And so I pray that we would not be like Jonah and run away from our enemies but that we would be willing to speak what the Lord has placed on our hearts to say. Because you never know the message that the Lord gives you, how they will respond. They could go straight into fasting and weeping over their actions. So don't just hold so tightly to God's compassion thinking, oh, I have it, I'm good. But how can we go after other people with this compassion and show God's goodness? But go with the Lord's leading. And so with all of these books of the early prophets, I pray that you have gotten a deeper sense of who God is in these trying times with these people, how you have been able to see his character shining through in the midst of their rebellion and their disregard for who he is but how he still chose to pursue them, how he still chose to show them his Hesed love. And may we never forget that and carry it with us always. So that we can go and be those same attributes and characteristics to this world. And so, Lord, we thank you for these books. We thank you for how they instruct us, how they lead us and guide us in your ways. And may we remember who you are in the mountaintops but in the valleys when we are faced with those that are our enemies. 
or when we're faced with our own rebellious attitudes. May we remember your love and your kindness and how you constantly chase after every single one of us to bring us back into righteousness and justice and to give us that firm and sure foundation. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.